If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Will Erskine, what can they guess? In the newsroom, Dan Weeks and Dave Woodard. Happy New Year's to all. Here's hoping this year is better than the last couple. Seriously, bring back the hog and love. Here's Scott Thompson. Bring back the hug and love. I was wondering what he said. It sort of sounded like Hagen Dawes. Bring back the Hagen Dawes love. Uh, good afternoon. It is 308. It is Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson. Happy New Year to you. Happy 2023. And as the boy said, hey, it's got to be better than the last couple. Look at it that way. Uh, and it's funny how our perceptions have changed over the last one, two, three years. Uh, remember uh, midway through the pandemic? Oh, it's going to be the roaring 20s when we get out of this. Uh, and of course, the year of getting out of this, theoretically last year, uh, for most of us, uh, it's proved to be pretty challenging, proved to be pretty tough. Prices going up, inflation and such, and, and the realities and the fallout of a global pandemic for two and a half years. So uh, we're up to a new start, a new year, and uh, here's hoping that uh, a lot of the problems <laughs> uh, grasped us in the past have fallen to the wayside, and we've learned our lessons. And hopefully hopefully this will be a year of unity. Uh, and it's interesting. I, I don't know if we got this poll coming up a little later on. There's a new poll out that says most of the Canadians, most of Canadians are in the center. They're not in the extreme left or the extreme right, which seems to be getting all of the headlines, all of the attention. Uh, so here's hoping that uh, the extreme settle down and the majority, the silent majority, uh, start to speak up this year. All right, another jam-packed uh, show. Hope uh, you hang around for it. Send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Phone lines always open. You can talk, you can text at 905-645-3221. We would love to hear from you. Don't forget the website at 900CHML.com. All the podcasts are there for all the shows and such. Uh, and don't forget about the CHML. HML Children's Fund. We thank you very much for all that you did over the course of the Christmas holidays in helping us uh, ramp up funds for the CHML Children's Fund. And a reminder, it goes 12 months of the year, so feel free to donate at uh, any time. We would uh, love to hear from you. All right. Lots going on, and boy, what an absolutely frightening game uh, if you're watching football. And a lot of Canadians were watching uh, Team Canada play, and that's what uh, I was watching at the time. And my son comes down and starts screaming, goes, Dad, you got to put the football game on. you got to put the football game on. And sure enough, um, you know, everything had come to a grinding halt uh, because of uh, DeMar Hamlin. Uh, collapsing on the field, going into cardiac arrest, and then the the agony for the next however long before we even got any sort of uh, information from hospital as to uh, what he had. And it turns out that uh, he went into cardiac arrest. He was actually revived on the field before he got into the ambulance and left to go to the hospital. Uh, and, you know, like obviously making a tackle and a, um, a hard hit to the chest area. Uh, seemed to shake it off, get up, and then just fell like a like a deck of cards. And um, it, it was just so impactful to see the team and and uh, how they were rallying around him and, and trying to figure out what was going on. But we're going to play you a clip right now. This is from uh, ABC's Dr. Jennifer Ashton on uh, the, the state of 
of him right now, of Jamar Hamlin right now. And from what we know, he is in stable condition at this point, but has obviously suffered this cardiac arrest and, um, and has been sedated because of the state that he's in. And here is the doctor uh, giving us a bit of an update on where he is at this point. It's pretty standard when someone suffers an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. Once we can restore a heartbeat, there is oftentimes intubation to protect someone's airway to make sure that they're being ventilated and oxygenated. And anytime someone is intubated with a breathing tube down their throat um, and then put on a ventilator, they have to be sedated. So uh, still waiting word as to the prognosis and moving forward uh, on this. Uh, this was very early into the game and obviously the game uh, postponed uh, as just this had an incredible impact over uh, all that were in the stadium and those, of course, uh, watching at home. So thoughts are with uh, of the family of Damar Hamlin and him and hoping that he can make a speedy recovery. Uh, and as soon as we find out more information on that, we will, uh, of course, uh, pass it along to you. Other big news, uh, we are still watching COVID coming out of China uh, simply because they goofed. They uh, they tried to lock everybody up, mask them up, uh, didn't have very high vaccination rates. Their vaccinations are far inferior to what we have. Uh, so just have handled it completely poorly. And uh, cases are starting to spike there again because of their inability to get control of it like the rest of the world has. Uh, and now people are talking about uh, countries, uh, many are are imposing travel bans on China again. Uh, Here's Global News' uh, Sandy Salerno on travel bans coming from China. Starting this Thursday, air travelers from China, Hong Kong, and Macau will need to present a negative COVID-19 test before entering Canada. The requirement will apply to anyone two and older, and the test will need to be taken within two days of departure. Similar moves are being made by the U.S., the U.K., France, India, and Spain. So why the new rules? Well, there's been a recent spike in COVID-19 cases in China after restrictions that have been in place for much of the pandemic were abruptly eased there. And there's concern about transparency because it's believed China may not be sharing all available data they have collected on infections. The Chinese government is now threatening countermeasures based on reciprocity for countries imposing these new entry restrictions, saying they lack scientific basis. Sandy Salerno, Global News. Uh, the good news is, and, and there's no variance of concern at this point, um, but obviously the more this virus is left unchecked and, li- and allowed to run rampant uh, through uh, civilian populations as it has all through uh, the world and now finally in China, um, uh, they're worried that the longer it takes to get this under control, that new variants could could in fact develop out of it. That being said, I want to reiterate that at this point that is not the case. There are uh, no variants of concern. However, with China's inability to get a hold of this, with uh, their zero uh, COVID policy, which basically meant if you tested positive, you locked down the whole apartment block, and we know the difficulties that that has caused. Um, you know, at the end, uh, that's where it started and that's where it is still continuing and they receive a failing grade from the world and I really think it's time that the rest of the world spoke up and checked them on this uh, for their lack of transparency.
transparency and not being open and honest in, with the rest of the world on any of this. Uh, we'll talk about that coming up a little later on and uh, talk to Dr. Ahmad, uh, Ahmad Khalid uh, on all of this and uh, any concerns moving forward coming up uh, just moments from now. First show of 2023, our first guest of 2023. And I'm sure if we look back in the archives, he was probably our first guest in 2022, 2021, 2020 as well. And how, uh, how bizarre is it that we've done full circle here? Dr. Ahmad Khalid is with us, health policy expert. Doctor, thank you so much for the time. Happy New Year to you. Same to you, Scott, and same to all our audience. Happy New Year to everybody. Boy, oh boy, uh, Ahmad, I think it has been like three years we have been talking about this. Um, uh, I know we're going to talk about pharmacists and, and their new uh, ability to hand out certain drugs, but I just want to get your take on what we're seeing happen in China. It seems that they have just have not been able to get a handle on this. What are your thoughts on, on where they find themselves at this point and why? Well, we're dealing with a big, large population size and, you know, effective government that's trying its best to control large numbers of COVID cases, which has demonstrated that it failed in certain times. And so what we're seeing right now is in China is basically a massive failure in the system to be able to combat the infection rate. And this is why we're seeing the major lockdowns are happening in China right now. So your thoughts on those? There's different um, uh, takes on whether this works or doesn't work. I know a lot of emphasis has also been put on testing wastewater, which I understand they're doing at Toronto and Vancouver airports uh, at this time. What are your thoughts on the travel restrictions coming back? I think the travel restrictions, we've always said this from day one, that they only work if you're able to catch it before the infection starts and before the spread of infection happens. And so when travel restrictions are imposed after infections have already surfaced in the communities, it becomes very useless in the sense to be able to control the number of cases that happen. And so, you know, for us here in Canada, I think we just have to be vigilant if there's any new strains that come to our shores and to make sure that we continue our vaccination campaigns um, and to encourage masks whenever possible uh how concerned are you and i remember way back when doctors saying that you know until we get a handle on this new variants can um can form are you concerned about that or that the variants seem to be although spread uh quickly seem to be less and less um uh, dangerous uh, from a from a fatality perspective are you concerned about any new variants coming out of this we will always be concerned about variants just because we never know how much uh, more dangerous they're going to be or how they're going to present themselves within our communities. However, the difference is, Scott, is that here in Canada, we have a high vaccination rate. Uh, people seem to be willing to still get their booster shots when possible or when they're allowed to do so. And so I think that helps us in a way to, as a community, to be able to surpass any of those major infections or outbreaks that happen in other parts of the world. So I think if we continue on the trend of making sure that our own immediate communities are vaccinated and getting their booster shots when possible, I think we should be able okay, to be okay in the future. You know, but we never know with those variants. I think every time we made a speculation that things should be okay, we might have been turned the wrong way. So I think it's just keeping a close eye on them. Uh, so how concerned are you that this is still spreading in some parts of the world? It seems that the in, in the you know uh, the West that we've we've got a handle on this, as you mentioned, with vaccination uh, immunity, whether getting it or not or such. Uh, are you concerned that there's a still, as you said, large population of the world where this is running rampant? 
You know, one thing that has been so clear to me throughout the pandemic, and I spoke to about it many times on your show, is that we need to live with COVID-19, that COVID-19 mm. is not going to be one of those things that just happened in 2020 and it's gone now. You know, we're in 2023 now, we're still talking about it, and I think we will continue to talk about it for as long as I'll remember now, because... You know, this is a virus that has somehow has been able to evade health systems and people's immunities. It's a, a virus, although that occurred in the past, has been able to reemerge with new variants that we weren't able to detect. Are we, are we getting better at it? For sure. We're having new technologies to be able to detect the virus, new treatments to combat it for severe illnesses. Our health systems are adapting. You and I will talk about the pharmacist in a second. Those are all things that happened because of this virus that emerged out of nowhere and has really taken toll on the entire world. So I think we will continue to talk about COVID-19. I don't think it'll, it will be over anytime soon. I think that for the people listening to us now, continue to get your vaccination when possible. You have to protect yourself first and foremost and the people around you that are more at most at risk of getting severe symptoms. As you mentioned, doctor, uh, as of the uh, or due to the global pandemic, it has made us look at things, reexamine our systems, uh, uh, make efficiencies where possible. One of them with pharmacies and now their ability to prescribe drugs uh, that they couldn't before. Explain what has happened here and how this will help. Sure. So one of the things that we knew that we did very badly at in Canada was that our health system, in a way, collapsed during the pandemic. We all remember the times when we had to wait a very long time to see our family doctor or excessively long times at the wait in emergency rooms. And so as a repercussion or as an effect of COVID-19, we, we the Ministry of Health was able to re-examine ways to reduce the burden on our family doctors. If you speak to any of your family doctors today, they'll tell you they're, you know, they're burnt out, they were uh, overburdened and under-resourced during the pandemic, and that many of them have actually left the profession because they were so overburdened by the number of excessive uh, calls and requests on them. So as a response to that, the Minister of Health has announced that nothing new, you know, other provinces have been doing this, other countries around have been doing this, is allowing pharmacists in the province of Ontario um, to selectively uh, join in, in, in prescribing medication. And the reason why I say this is it's important to alert the, our audience is that not all pharmacies will participate in this. This is optional for pharmacies. So the advice that I have for all of them is to call ahead to your pharmacy to make sure they are actually prescribing medication. And they're prescribing medication for 13 common illnesses that many of us have that we used to go to our family doctors for. Those are things like urinary tract infections, you know, sprains and strains from, you know, you play the soccer game or basketball and you need to go to see your doctor for some medication for painkillers. You can go to your pharmacist for that now. Insect bites, um, oral thrush, pink eye, hemorrhoids, acid reflux, cold sores. There's a list of 13 um, sort of common illnesses that now you can go to your pharmacy and you it's free of charge. So we weren't we weren't um, 100% confirmed whether how we're going to pay for this. But now it is clear that it's free of charge with your Ontario health, health card. All right, there you have it. Change is uh, new for 2023 at the pharmacy uh, in Ontario as a result of lessons learned through a global pandemic. Dr. Ahmad Khalid with his health policy expert. As always, doctor, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Same to you, Scott. Thank you. 
You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Let's bring in Larry Deani, former mayor of the city of Hamilton, and talk about what's on the horizon for the city going into two, uh, 2023. Boy, it's going to be a while for us to remember how to say that or to learn how to say it and forget about saying 2022. Uh, Larry Deani is with us now. Larry, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Happy New Year to you. Well, Happy New Year to you as well, Scott. Uh, nice to hear from you again. So as you look back on the last year, what do you think the biggest story or some of the biggest stories were in Hamilton? What do you think resonated with Hamiltonians in the last year? Well, certainly the election was the big story for Mm. Hamilton as far as city council is concerned. Uh, There was a huge turnover, uh, 10 brand new people brought on uh, to the the horseshoe, and uh, uh, they are now, uh, for better or for worse, the... uh, the team that uh, is going to guide this city over the next term. So that was a, a huge story. Um, along with that, of course, I mean, there were uh, uh, there were elections at other levels as well, uh, provincially I'm talking about, uh, which was an election where uh, Mr. Ford won a huge majority, in fact, an increased majority, uh, without really spelling out um, what it is that he wanted to do. He laid out some trinkets, uh, for voters and voters' bit, and uh, uh, once he was elected, now we're seeing that he's being aggressive on a number of files uh, that'll affect Hamiltonians as well as others in the province as well. And of course, we're still shaking from the reverberations of uh, you know the sewage spills and then uh, the spill into the into the waters for many many months, if not years. Uh, in fact, it was uh, many years uh, from a number of homes. So some environmental issues are there. And uh, meanwhile, hanging over uh, all of uh, our collective heads is, uh, you know, the LRT. Will it go ahead? Is it being implemented? Is this the year where the shovels hit the ground or are we going to get stuck again? So all of those were interesting things that we had to deal with. And, of course, uh, overriding all of that was the pandemic. And uh, were we out of it? Were we not? Are we still in it? Uh, We've got these new variants now. Are we going to go back with mandates of one sort or another? So there's lots to uh, create excitement and worry as we head into 2023. As you said, big changeover in council this year. Uh, Are we going to see growing pains as a result of that? What's the biggest challenge for this new council moving forward? Well, I I think, um, uh, yes, we've already seen some growing pains, you know, uh, right out of the gate. Um, I think um, uh, the council made a couple of missteps. One, uh, some of them anyway, uh, vowed not to speak to the media um, out of peak, I think, more than anything else. Uh, which I think is a huge error to, to shut out the media in terms of wanting to get your own message out. Um, and, and also they uh, they uh, didn't quite vote because it went over to the budget, but they gave themselves um, a framework for a fairly hefty budget increase to their own budgets, uh, which may or may not be justified, but did that have to be the very first thing they did, uh, even before their seats were warm? Um, and um, now they did kick it over to, to the budget process rather than making a decision on the spot, which I guess is uh, is better than having done that. But it just set up, I think, an unfortunate um, uh, an unfortunate sort of precedent in in terms of wanting to come out of an election 
uh, all uh, enthused about helping uh, Hamiltonians when, in fact, it seemed, at least the optics are, that they just helped themselves. Uh, and that's unfortunate. Uh, it'll be quickly forgotten. It's probably already forgotten. Uh, but I'm sure whoever runs against some of them in four years' time will remind voters that that's what they did. What about housing, Larry? I mean, obviously, it's it's an issue right the way across the country. We're hearing um, uh, demonstrations, uh, protests in regard to uh, a protest in regard to expanding Greenbelt. Yet we can't get yeah. white belts or white lands developed, uh, which is, I believe, the land outside the boundary, but inside, or sorry, out, um, inside the the boundary, but outside the Greenbelt. Where do you see this going? Because it seems that the pressure is really being put on mini- the municipalities to perform here. Yeah, uh, you know, I, I haven't spoken to provincial um, authorities on this, uh, and I'm a little puzzled. Uh, I understand making more land available for housing, um, hopes to then have more housing constructed. Um, but the key word is affordability. I, I think we've got, and people have pointed this out, we've got lots of uh, um, uh, available and approved um, land uh, for housing that is not being built on yet. Uh, and, uh, and of course, um, adding to that inventory doesn't necessarily mean that the housing will be cheaper. Now, the province has done some things that may help the lower-income housing, uh, especially, you know, the, the, uh, uh, the, the government-structured uh, uh, municipalities by, by eliminating uh, development charges, which will lower, you know, uh, the cost of housing by some thousands of dollars, and that'll help. Uh, but it's still not going to make it as affordable as people think, I don't think. Um, I, I think the uh, the whole issue of uh, the green belt has been mishandled by the province. I think Mr. Ford could have um, could have could have been more judicious in the way that he rolled out uh, this plan and the way that he walked back his promise not to touch the green belt. If it simply reminded the electorate that part of the Greenbelt legislation allows for a cyclical review and a mm-hmm. cyclical review leading to perhaps changes which have already occurred in the past to the Greenbelt itself. In some cases, they add to it. In some cases, they subtract to it. And I can think of a number of properties in Hamilton that when the Greenbelt was instituted, I scratched my head. Um, as to why they would include that property uh, at the um, uh, in, in the green belt and exclude other property which was contiguous to already undevelopable land and could have formed part of the green belt. So if Ford had been judicious, if he hadn't, or somebody on his team uh, seems to have tipped off people who went out, rushed, and bought property. And one day were out, and the next day were in the green belt. I think he he could have. Um, certainly communicated it far better to municipalities and citizens across Ontario that what he was what he was doing was trying to help the housing crisis as opposed to helping people who made you know and will make exorbitant profits from purchasing land that uh, they bought at non green at greenbelt prices and and then uh, it turns out they may not be uh, greenbelt lands after all. So it, it was mishandled from that perspective. But I also think that the the reaction by some, including some on our council, the hand-wringing, 
the protestations, the protests, the the declaration that that you know um, um, we're we're going to hell in the handbasket. I think that's an overreaction as well. And what we need, and I and I like, by the way, uh, what Andrea Horvath um, has done so far. She's now been part of the histrionics. She's made it clear that she doesn't support the policy, but she hasn't gone out and Bonnie Crombied, um, you know, the uh, <laughs> use her name in vain uh, in that way. She hasn't gone out and sort of drawn attention to herself. She has stated her position, and what we need is a firm hand um, on the on the tiller to guide us through this and make the best possible decisions. Because remember, we're talking about, in terms of this population growth that's coming over the next 25 and 50 years, in some cases, we're talking about lands that will not come on stream, even if they're approved today, for 20, 30, 40 years. Yeah. So I don't think, you know, uh, we, we need to, to overly fret, although we certainly don't want to see the destruction of wetlands and intrusion into, into those areas uh, for the sake of constructing some homes, because in that case, we're buying more uh, problems than we're solving, quite frankly. Yeah, it's uh, this problem has to be discussed. It's not going away, that's for sure. Larry DeAnne with us, former mayor of Hamilton, on what's on the horizon for the city of Hamilton in the next year. Larry, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you, sir. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. This time of the year, we hear all the lists. Uh, we get all the lists, the best of, the worst of, uh, everything that uh, comes to the end of a year that is finished and a new one that begins. And the one way, the one way to guarantee that your list whoever you are, whether you're Rolling Stone or Time Magazine or whoever, that your list gets the most attention is leave someone off it. Otherwise, we probably wouldn't have batted another eye, at least perhaps not those of us in Canada. Uh, Rolling Stone Magazine released its 20 greatest, two, sorry, 200 greatest singers of all time. Uh, there were some snubs, including Celine Dion. <gasps> How does that happen? All the Canadian subscriptions from Rolling Stone are going to be cancelled. Uh, let's bring in Eric Alper, music publicist and commentator with us now. Eric, thanks for the time. Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year. So, so again, we're not talking about who's on this. We're talking about the one Canadian that was left <laughs> off it. So is this a sure-fired way to make sure your list gets media coverage after it's released? Exactly. Thanks for having me. We'll talk soon. Um, this is this is exactly <laughs> what it is. This is. You know, can you just not picture... The marketing department and social media department saying, yeah, that's really nice. With, of course, Celine Dion being like maybe 73 on the list going, you know what we need? We need to eliminate a couple of people in order to make this go viral because mm. nobody's talking about the fact that Aretha Franklin is number one or Whitney Houston is number two and Sam Cooke, Billie Holiday, Mariah Carey all round out the top five. And nobody's talking about the entire top 10 essentially coming from the gospel world of the southern u.s or these influences and nobody's talking about <laughs> bob dylan at number 15 people are just talking about the fact that celine dion is not on this list which really shouldn't be a surprise coming from rolling stone they've never garnered and given her any respect whatsoever in fact if you go through all of the record reviews that they have published from celine none of them get more than two out of five stars so um not a surprise but a kind 
kind of surprised that uh, a magazine is able to get this much attention worldwide. So why have they not given her credit that some say is due then? Because the last time that they did a list like this and then the last time that they were doing lists like this, they were full of white male rockers. In fact, when they did a list like this with the greatest singers of all time, it was filled with classic rockers um, uh, that were, you know, much higher up on the list than this one. Um, Paul McCartney was in the top 10. John Lennon was in the top 10. Elvis Presley was in the top 10. Um, you had, you know, singers from like Anne and Nancy Wilson of Heart that's not on this list. You had a lot of people from Kansas and Journey and all sorts, yes. the Doobie Brothers, Michael McDonald. Um, and then they make a list like this and they're like, oh, we can't really do that anymore. We have to now include world music artists. We have to include K-pop and a lot more pop artists than in the past. And so some people are going to be left off of it. And unfortunately, you know, Celine Dion was one of them. And Pink wasn't on this list as well. That was somebody hmm. who has garnered a lot of attention. And in this home, I'm sorry, but I, Phil Collins is not on this list. He's the only other artist other than Michael Jackson, Paul McCartney, to sell 100 million albums in both a group and a solo artist. Absolutely disrespectful in the Alper household. So what is the criteria, do you think? And, it, you know, it's it's up to each individual, but what do you think their criteria was for this list? Well, the pre-read for the list says that the list is based on overall artistry. It's not only how well you sing, but the uh, the power, the influence. Um, it's not necessarily people that have a good voice, but a great voice. So that's why somebody like Ozzy Osbourne is on this list. Um, Ozzy Osbourne does not have a good voice. Ozzy Osbourne has a great voice. And Bob Dylan is the same for what they need to do with it. And that's why you end up with a lot of rockers on the list, like Rob Halford of Judas Priest, artists that tend, or Dio from the metal world, artists that tend not to get a lot of respect in the commercial world for their having a great voice, um, but they're on this list as well. So you also have Salsa Queen Celia Cruz um, in the top 20, um, right in front of Frank Sinatra, and she's at number 18. So these are people who tend not to garner a lot of attention normally, um, but when you kind of have a broad range of, it's not just how many notes that you can belt in one in one moment, but your influence, the grain of your voice, and your emotion that you put around it. So when you think about it, the criteria is very much based on when you said things like artistry, that's very much open to interpretation and Absolutely. very much that's, debate. It gets you yeah. talking about all this. Yeah, yeah. that's why Britney Spears, Madonna and Michael Jackson are ranked very low on this list. But Ariana Grande and Rihanna are marked very, very high is that their influence over this generation of music. Hmm. Um, is is you know uh, easily in the top five artists uh, of the era, um, and but you know knowing full well that Ariana Grande and Rihanna don't even exist as people unless Britney Spears and Madonna and Michael Jackson um, are there in the first place. You know, not only building uh, the door for them to go down, but literally building the house that everybody else hmm. followed. Eric Alper with us, publicist and music commentator, Rolling Stone magazine, releasing its list of the 200 greatest singers of all time. And the, de the debate, the discussion is who is not on it. Eric, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. We'll talk soon.
Uh, still to come in this hour, uh, talk to a professor in regard to um, what they think happened on the field uh, in uh, Cincinnati when, of course, uh, Buffalo Bills uh, player uh, Demar Hamill, uh, Hamlin rather uh, collapsed, went into cardiac arrest after making a tackle. And to talk more about that, uh, certainly the biggest uh, Buffalo Bills fan in our building, and that is Jay McQueen, weather specialist. He's with us now. Jay, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Hey, no problem, Scott. You know, I, um, I I was watching Team Canada when this was happening, and then my son came down because he had you know seen it on or had heard about it on the internet or whatever, and then we flipped it over. But man, I was thinking, uh, I know you and your wife are just massive Buffalo Bills fans. What you must have been thinking during this game when this was all going down? What was your take? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I've been a diehard Bills fan for uh, since they first went to the Super Bowl in uh, about 1990 or 91. And uh, so I've watched a lot of games uh, very closely and uh, with a lot of enthusiasm. And, of course, you know, um, last night was uh, was the biggest game of the year uh, so far for the Bills. And um, so I, I had put uh, our son down to bed and then got downstairs to watch the beginning of the game and, um, and Jen was uh, putting our daughter, who's a little bit older, to bed. Uh, so she had uh, missed what had happened, and uh, she came downstairs and and looked at me, and 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 she kind of thought, "What's going on?" I said, I, "And I said, I have never seen anything like this." in my years of watching NFL football. And she's like, what? And something happened to Josh Allen or, you know, I've got the jersey and all that stuff. And I said, no. So I explained it. And, uh, yeah, I, I, again, it was just absolutely uh, to see to see a, a player get hit. And I didn't see it live. I had to watch the replay to see what happened. Right. But to see DeMar Hamlin get hit, you know, stand up and then uh, and then collapse on the field was just just the probably the most frightening thing I've ever seen in sports. But, and it was yeah. interesting. It was inter- interesting to watch because during the game, as you said, they were running the replay. Now I'm noticing on the news when you're seeing it, they're cutting the clip before he actually drops because he literally did just drop like a deck of cards. It was you could tell something was seriously, seriously wrong here. Your thoughts on the time that passed between you know him being on the field, getting hit, going down, and when that ambulance finally left. Yeah, I mean, it was you're you're kind of hoping they kept going to break, and you were kind of hoping, okay, you know, that they're they're working on them, they're they're kind of getting them in a position where eventually you're hope, you're going to see some sort of thumbs up by Hamlin, and you know, and I've seen uh, ambulances come on the field before, but it, it took a while, and you know, to learn that, and I guess what tipped me off to how serious it was was, you know, before we knew about them administering CPR, they came back from one of the breaks and showed the players faces and when i saw josh allen covering his mm. mouth and his and with tears coming down his face steph diggs crying uh, tredavious white all these guys i mean i've seen players with looks of concern on their faces before when when their teammates have suffered serious injuries i had never seen anything remotely close to how uh, upset the players looked last night and that tipped me off to how bad it was and then um you know, they came back and said, oh, they had to do CPR, and it was just a whole other level of, holy cow, this is serious. And literally on both sides of the field. I mean, you, you got to imagine how the guy that hit him feels. Yeah, and, uh, you know, it, it's these kinds of collisions happen all the time. Yeah. Um, I was I was texting with a friend of mine. We watched the games, He, you know, and we texted about it, and, and he said it didn't, you know, it kind of looked like a, 
you know, a run-of-the-mill hit. And, yeah, yeah I mean, these are the kinds, this is what's scary about it is that, you know, um, it, <laughs> these kinds of hits happen quite often, but it, I guess it's just, you know, the way he And uh, it's one of those, uh, you know, one-off situations that uh, causes the um, the cardiac arrest. But, yeah, it was just, it, it, at first it didn't look, I didn't even see it initially, and then and then the replay, you know, I, 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 I saw it because and didn't see what happened, and they, by then ESPN had stopped showing it, so I found a link on Twitter to send mm. it to her, but then a short time later she said, oh, they've, you know, they've taken it down, it's, it's been yeah. deleted, so, and I, I can understand that, but at the same time, you know, it's nice to see what happened so you can understand the gravity of the situation, you know. Uh, thoughts and prayers with Jamar Hamlin in critical condition in a Cincinnati hospital after a hit in yesterday's game sent him into cardiac arrest. Jay McQueen with his weather specialist and ultimate uh, Bills fan on his thoughts. Jay, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Okay. Prayers for uh, Jamar Hamlin, right? Back at you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We were talking to Alyssa Freeman, PR pop culture expert and uh, resident royal uh, watcher, we'll say, uh, in regard to the Netflix thing with uh, Harry and Meghan and where does this go from here and how do they, you know, what happens after the last episode? Well, you go back on TV and you do some interviews about your book that's coming out. It never ends. Alyssa Freeman, PR and pop culture expert with us now. Alyssa, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Yes, Happy New Year, Scott. Happy New Year to you, too. Uh, we were talking about this before uh, the holiday and saying, what, what do you, how do you follow this up? But clearly, there's a plan, because uh, there's a book that's coming out and another interview that's coming out next week. We're he- seeing and hearing excerpts of that, that uh, Harry wants to get back with his dad and his brother. Uh, can, can you make those statements after kind of throwing the palace under the bus? Oh my, this is just PR catnip for me, Scott. And when I <laughs> the story, I said, this is a coup, a PR coup. I mean, listen, what Harry has done and the major thread that, that, and I did watch this. I mean, every time I got called, have you watched it yet? Have you watched it? So finally I sat down and I watched the the $110 million documentary. And the major thread, the narrative thread that's running through there, Scott, is that you gamed me with the press. So now I'm going to game you back. Hmm. And that's just what Harry and Meghan are doing. So you can say that this is all Meghan's doing, or you can say this is all Harry's doing, or this is all the the doing of some really smart communications PR strategist that they have hired that is working behind the scenes that is probably a friend of a friend of a friend and is doing all the dirty and dastardly work for them and advising them as such. So, we have a book and it's dropping on Monday, January 10th. So that's a week from week from yesterday. And yesterday you started seeing the planting of interviews of what is going to happen and what they're going to talk about with this book. So you're going to see a drumbeat of uh, different narratives, but they're all falling under the narrative of one of men's fences with my brother and my father. Hmm. However, I'm only going to do it after you buy my book so you can really see what's going on. And you can only imagine the pla- the palace is probably girding them, girding their loins with for this one. But so what they've done is they've taken the week before and they're going to develop what we call sort of a PR crescendo where they're going to, st- you know, drop little smart bombs or strategically placed interviews all this week leading up with the granddaddy of all uh, interviews, which will be 60 uh, minutes on Sunday evening. 
So imagine, Scott, 7 p.m. or later, if there's a football game, as we well know, and there everybody's this is must see TV. This is what, you know, um, the TV uh, conglomerates and stations love because this is what they call uh, forced viewing. So this is must-see TV. People are going to flock. You know, what else is on? Not even Disney is on anymore at that time, Scott. So Hmm. there's no other real competition. NFL football is finished for the evening, and now they're going to have this interview. It's going to probably pull huge numbers. I would imagine that 60 Minutes, the advertising department is on the phone right now beating up their advertisers, or everybody's clamoring to get some sort of spot uh, in or around that interview. It's going to be a huge payday for CBS. It's going to be a huge PR windfall for Harry. And it'll also very nicely slide as people are probably sitting there watching TV, pre-ordering the book on Amazon, so that when it actually drops, I guess what they're hoping is that it'll break the internet with the amount of orders that will happen. Uh, Did you just say that Disney's not on at 6 o'clock on Sunday nights anymore? I know, and there's no more Velveeta commercials either. So, so I'm, I'm glad you understand. Oh, man. All right, so you said something interesting, um, and obviously he wants his brother and his dad back, which is another bizarre debate right there. But can you separate the family from the institution? Isn't the family the institution? Oh, I think so. And I think they've made that abundantly clear in this documentary. You know, I'm watching this documentary rolling my eyes half the time. But my husband's sitting there going, you know, really? You know, this is what's going on. I have this newfound respect for Megan and my daughter. And I'm like, what? What? So, I mean, listen, it's, it's working. You know, whatever they set out to do is absolutely working. So, I think that, you know, if you're on the inside, you know, there's the institution and then there's the family. But for those of us on the outside looking in, for us, it is all of the same. So the fact that Harry is now seeding his own messages through the press to his family in the same way as he alleges they actually Mm. tore um, uh, himself and Megan down in the very same way through the press, not directly, but indirectly, he is merely playing their game. And I have to say, when you look at the face of it, the way that the media is covering this in, you know, regular 11 o'clock or 10 o'clock or six o'clock news coverage. I mean, it's up there. If it's not in the end half of the first 15 minutes, it's certainly going to be in the back half. Is this up to Chuck to fix? Is it up to dad to make it all right? Up to Chuck. It's up to Chuck. Somebody's going to have that headline tomorrow, Scott. There you go. You can and have it, Alyssa. You're up to, to Chuck. You're, you're, gonna, you're going to take credit for it. You know, it's so interesting how we think that the palace will respond because every time they're out and about on a walkabout now, somebody, a reporter who's covering them, screams out and says, well, what do you think? Are you going to talk to Harry? What do you think about the book? And he looks, he smiles, and then it's straight ahead. So, mm. you know, the palace has had this sort of PR playbook for centuries now or decades, as long as we've been watching, where it's stiff upper lip and carry on. But now you have all these other forces. You have shows like The Crown. You have Netflix documentaries. You have uh, a a, a prince going rogue and writing his own book. It's sort of like, you know, when you have a a band and Mick Jagger says, you know what, I'm just going to take off for a while and do my own albums. Hmm. You know, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. So I think that the palace will obviously... I can't see them putting out a holding statement. They're not going to say anything before these interviews. They're going to watch the interview. The interview will be carefully cut. 
And not only that, I wouldn't be surprised if Harry's camp gets to have a viewing of that interview as part of the deal for getting this coup, because you just don't give interviews like of this magnitude without making a deal, Scott. Alyssa Freeman, PR and pop culture expert, the latest chapter in Harry and Meghan's ongoing saga, and it ain't over yet. Alyssa, as always, thank you for the time. Be well. Ta-ta for now, Scott. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right. Um, Here we are. It's uh, January 3rd, 2023. And what does the uh, future hold for us Uh, and the past as far as politically uh, and and events of 2022? Let's bring in Nelson Wiseman, professor with the Department of Political Science, University of Toronto, and is with us now. Nelson, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, Scott. Before we get into the upcoming year and getting you, Nelson, to look into your crystal ball, uh, your take on the last year, what stands out politically for you uh, in the last year? Well, the biggest story by far was the occupation convoy in uh, in Ottawa last, uh, last winter and mm. the parallel uh, border blockages, particularly the one in uh, Windsor, which held up billions of dollars in trade that go across that bridge. Do you believe that that problem has been solved in that if something was to happen today, that it would be dealt with in a, in a much more efficient manner than it was? Because obviously we know we don't need to repeat what happened uh, way back when. But are Canadians convinced if it happened again, we'd be able to deal with it this time? Well, no two situations are alike. So I, I can't see it happen. Uh, I'm not sure what would trigger it again. My own view is that, uh, but I have a good news bias, is that COVID will be in the rearview mirror by the end of uh, 2023. So um, uh, the underlying problem is still there, and that isn't the, the masking. There's just more polarization and a real detesting in some circles of uh, Justin Trudeau. And I feel a lot of the demonstrators, the occupiers, uh, weren't just protesting uh, uh, the, the masking requirements and and uh, the fact, you know, that they couldn't fly mm-hmm. and so on, and some were laid off in their jobs. It was the fact that they don't like Trudeau, and that came through in the signs, you know, where... Yeah. They were using expletives, and and they they had uh, images of nooses. So that issue is there, and that's not going to go away. But I don't see um, that in and of itself um, leading to similar, um, I don't even want to say confrontation, because they weren't confronted until the Emergencies Act was imposed. And... Uh, so when you say could it have been done more efficiently, yes, but that wasn't a, a political uh, uh, issue. That was really a policing issue, and the police mm. showed, the Ottawa police showed that they were not up to the task. And and uh, other police forces, uh, you know, at all levels just didn't coordinate. I think the majority of the public, the overwhelming majority of the public, supports what the federal government did. If anything, I think the criticism is that they should have acted sooner. 
Yeah. <laughs> Once it gets to that point, what else are you going to do? Uh, so you're talking about the shine is wearing off the prime minister. Um, are Canadians taking out their anger on the prime minister? Is that justified? Uh, well, uh, are they taking their anger out on the prime minister? Uh, some are, yes, like the ones that were in the occupation convoy. Is it justified? Well, you know, that. I mean, that's up to them. I, I mean, some people... Uh, think it is uh, you know they don't like Trudeau they don't like what he stands for they don't like where he comes from uh, the same sort of um, reaction greeted his father uh, you're, um, hmm. uh, Trudeau is uh, an MP from Quebec he speaks French he's fully bilingual um, Albertans uh, just aren't, aren't uh, haven't been tuned into that and they weren't uh, 50, 60 years ago either. So in that respect, not much changed. And if you think back to uh, Harper's time, you, you had a similar dynamic where a large part of the population, especially in large urban centers, I'm thinking of even places like uh, Hamilton, didn't much care for Stephen Harper. So you've got broad underlying political cultural issues and a historical context that seems to transcend often who the personality is in office. Uh, obviously, the Prime Minister is is very heavy on social issues uh, and, and has built his campaign, his career on that. Not much on what we're now seeing as kitchen table issues, such as the economy, health care, uh, inflation, housing, and such. Is that catching up to him? Well, okay, well, those are a lot of issues. When it comes to inflation there really isn't very much the federal government can do. I know you're going to hear a lot of talk, oh, you know, it's because they're spending a lot of money. No, they were spending a lot of money before. In fact, they were spending more money last year with all the support programs with COVID than they are now. And uh, But we're getting inflation now, which we didn't have last year. Uh, with respect to things like health care and housing, that's much more, I think health care will be a big issue. It is a big issue around, uh, you know, the kitchen table, the dining room table, and in the emergencies room, as you yeah. mentioned. But uh, that ball is really in the hands of the provincial premiers. All the federal government does there is transfer money, and it tries to have conditions. And the provinces often say, yeah, yeah, we'll spend it on this, like, let's say, mental health or elder care or dental care. But once they get the money... They largely do what they want. The challenge in healthcare is restructuring the system. Bingo. Then, so how do you restructure the system, the Canadian, the Canada Health Act, at the provincial level? And, and sorry to interrupt, Nelson, but I, I'm tired of listening that this is more of the you know province's responsibility because it didn't stop the prime minister from injecting his opinion and his thoughts when it came to daycare, when it came to dental care, when it comes to pharmacare, which are also all provincial issues. So he's very much cherry-picking which ones he wants to uh, support at the provincial level. And I think everybody is just looking for some leadership as the provinces are coming together and trying to talk. I think the Canadians are looking for leadership on how we reform the system. He said it's up to the provinces to reform the system. I'm not sure the provinces have the authority to reform the system without the leadership of the Prime Minister. Are we passing the buck here? No. In fact, all those areas you mentioned, like pharmacare, dental care, forget the other one, that's uh, daycare, 
yes, those are also provincial, but when I say they're structural problems, it isn't with those pro- it isn't the programs you're introducing. The structural problems are uh, you know the number of doctors we have, the licensing uh, arrangements, the uh, the number of people that are admitted to medical school, whether provinces and their provincial medical associations will certify or approve foreign doctors. It's those kinds of things where the the problem is. And um, so it's not the specific programs, it's the delivery of programs. It's what's happening in in emergency rooms. Yeah, it's the template that needs to be changed, but do the provinces on an individual level have the power to do that? If we need a wholesale template change, do we not need leadership on that issue across the country? The, the, the federal government can yell all at once about uh, approving uh, foreign doctors that come in, but that's up to the provinces. The federal government can give the provinces money to create more health, uh, 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 places in medical school, although even if that happened, uh, they're not going to graduate for seven years. Uh, but it's up to the provinces if they're going to do that. Yes, the provinces are fully autonomous when it comes to health care. All that the federal government can do is to try to guide them. And How would this conversation be different, Nelson, if every single prime minister was liberal, or every single premier was no, liberal? No, no, the same problem existed with Harper. We had health... <laughs> look, health has been a constant issue. This that's is my the, point. This, that's the, the problem is that the, all that the, the, the Health Care Act does is it says if you if the plan is portable, if it's universal, if it's accessible, if it's publicly administered, those are the conditions. We'll get, we'll pay some of the money for that, but the, the, you can't change the you can change the Canada Health Care Act all you want, but you can't put in there things that the provinces have sovereign authority over. For example, who they license or who they deal with. Uh, you know the the provincial uh, associations of doctors and nurses and other healthcare workers. That's not under the federal government. Can't change any of those things. All it can do, it, it, yes, it can direct money toward programs. I'm not talking, as I said, about programs. Yeah, yeah. It's structure. It's how the hospitals operate. The federal government can't open hospitals in Ontario. I just think, Nelson, that the Canadians would like to see the Prime Minister as engaged in health care as he is in dental care, as he is in daycare, and as he is with pharmacare. And, and that just doesn't seem to be the yes. issue. Well, well, yes, because in those, he can do things. He can dangle money. But I'm not sure. In, uh, mind you, I you know I think he could dangle money and say, if you create more medical uh, spaces in medical schools, we'll do something. And incidentally, what limits the provinces as well? It isn't just federal money; it's the professional associations they deal yeah. with. Nelson, I got to cut you off right here because we're plumb out of time, but we will continue this discussion with Nelson Wiseman, professor, Department of Political Science, University of Toronto. Thank you, Nelson. Be well. You too. Thank you. 
You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. If you were watching yesterday, Buffalo Bills, DeMar Hamlin collapses uh, during the Bills-Cincinnati Bengals game after making a tackle, a successful tackle, then literally stood up and then dropped like a deck of cards. It was uh, unbelievable to see uh, and experience, and certainly for those uh, on either team and in the stadium watching all of this. Let's bring in Renee Vanderboom, professor of kinesiology and an expert in sport health and is with us now renee thanks for the time i hope you're well i am thanks your thoughts on what we saw happen uh, yesterday in uh, cincinnati obviously we're speculating at this point we understand he's still in critical condition demar hamlin in a cincinnati hospital um, where he is undergoing treatment your thoughts on what you saw and what you suspect may have happened well i wasn't there obviously but I was actually watching the Team Canada game. I just seen yeah. Connor Bedard score his goal. So I saw the hit, and you could kind of tell it wasn't a normal injury by the way they were reacting. And from what I can gather, what happened to DeMar was uh, an example of what's called commotio cordis. And it's a, an extremely rare event, an extremely unfortunate event, and he may have been hit just in the wrong way at the wrong time as a, to cause his heart to go into fibrillation. And when so, that happens, your heart still contracts, but it doesn't pump blood. And up in, so, there's a lack of oxygen, and you your muscles fail, and you pass out. So uh, this is just an impact at the, uh, you know, at, at one of those angles, at one of those directions, and just enough to set the heart off. And that's like just obviously a, a tremendous impact to the chest. What does that do to the heart? That causes the left ventricle to go into what's called fibrillation. And it's just the heart still is contracting, but it's contracting in an uncoordinated way. And so there's no, it doesn't pump blood. And the only way to restore it is with fibrillation, uh, sorry, with a defibrillator. And I imagine that's what they did in the ambulance to get him going again. And what about long-term effects from this type of injury? It's impossible for me to say, but it all depends on how long his brain was deprived of oxygen. Hmm. They obviously were performing CPR immediately and, uh, We'll see what the outcome is, but players have been saved by CPR before. So you, were t- you were talking, Renee, ab- about how this is a very rare event. You see, you know, hits in football, in, you know, dramatic hits in football, and, and players literally uh, walk away from this. Are you surprised we don't see more of this sort of injury, considering the, the impact of this sport? When something like that happens, it does make you wonder why it doesn't happen more often. Um, but again, it, he may have had an underlying condition. We just don't know yet. Yeah. And what about recovery from this sort of uh, of injury? Uh, I guess you have to wait to see if there's any damage to the heart itself. And uh, as you mentioned, obviously lack of oxygen to the body for an extended period of time. Yeah, I just can't... Uh, not being there, I, I just don't know. Uh, do you think, uh, can we, is there anything that can be done to avoid this sort of thing? Do you see any of that, or is it just the hazards of an impact game? 
it is unfortunately an accepted hazard in a game like football. It also happens in baseball, happens occasionally in mm. hockey. A couple of hockey players have died from after being hit in the chest. There's just, I guess, there's not much you can do to prevent it in real time on the field, but what you can do is screen athletes ahead of time to see if they have any underlying conditions that would predispose them to something like that happening. Mm. Renee Vanderboon with us, professor of kinesiology and an expert in sport health, uh, talking to us about uh, Buffalo Bills, Damar Hamlin, and him collapsing during the game yesterday. Renee, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. It's a brand new year. It's uh, January 3rd, 2023. Wow, it even seems weird to say it. Um, thank goodness we don't have to write it on a check anymore. Uh, those are the old days. Uh, but it is the start of a new year. A lot of people are very optimistic, yeah, an uplifting time, New Year's resolutions, new start, and for others, not so much. Uh, does it change coming out of or wherever we are within a global pandemic? Let's bring in Steve Jordan's professor of, psycho- of psychology at the University of Toronto and is with us now. Steve, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Um, I am well, thanks. I hope you are as well, Scott. Yes, and Happy New Year to you. Um, does yeah. it does it automatically mean a new start, uh, lots of optimism, turning the page? Uh, is is this always, should it always be about starting new, a fresh page? Yeah, I mean, I think it naturally is, simply not only because of New Year itself, but of course all the rituals that we engage in going up to the New Year where we're often re-engaging with family or with friends we haven't seen for a while. And, and invariably, we're, we're kind of thinking about, well, where are we? You know, how are we doing in life and and what are we doing? And, and I think that sort of breeds that reflective spirit, which New Year's Eve kind of is then the trigger. Yeah, what are you going to do about it? If you're not happy about where you are, what are you going to do about it? And so I think we all have those thoughts a little, yeah. So it's more of a time where we stopped and it's self-reflection and, you know, the rest of the year it's kind of busy. We're, you know, busy working and doing whatever we have to do on a day-to-day basis to keep uh, to keep things moving in our lives. At this time, it stops and it's a chance to look back. Is Is that always healthy? Is it healthy? Should we always do this? Should we do it more often? Well, I, I think a lot of people would say, yes, we should do it more often, especially if when we do it, we're thinking about why we value what we value and whether we have things right. Like, are we in a pursuit of careers and money? And and if we are, is that really the, the pursuit we want to continue on in? So I think with that sort of deep reflection where you get a chance to emerge from the day-to-day just mud of life and get to kind of think, you know, what am I doing? What path am I on? And, and do I want to continue in this path? And I think the pandemic bred a lot of that sort of reflection already. Um, but I think, yeah, we're, the way we work is changing. Everything's changing. And it feels like maybe there's an opportunity to reshape ourselves to, to kind of fit this world. At the same time, the world's awful scary right now. So you can only be so optimistic. That was my next question. Um, is it different this year because of the global pandemic and where we are? We now seem to be out of it, although we're living with it probably is a more accurate description. But are those priorities different now? Resolutions I mean, I, I, different as a result. I, I definitely think most of us cognitively are are acting at least as though the danger has passed and, and we're looking forward. Um, I mean, there is just with climate change and with everything going on in Ukraine, we just have a lot of upsetness in the world right now. And I think that's what makes it all a little tricky for us. We've been chronically stressed. 
we're kind of coming out of that, but there's still these stressors on the horizon. And I think we are all trying to say, okay, I want to look forward. I want to be positive. I want to kind of get to a better place. And I think that's a really healthy response to have to all this. Um, but every now and then we might feel ourselves get pulled the other way as well. Uh, you talked about the divisiveness uh, in the country, and you know we've yeah. talked about that a, a lot during the the stages of the pandemic and such. Um, do you think we're going to see that change? I mean, will all of a sudden we wake up and go, you know what, we're not as divisive as we were when we came out of the pandemic? I mean, will we actually say that, or do you think um, it's it'll be so gradual we won't notice, or we really won't change that much? So my hope, you know, what, what, what I suggest to people is um, to the extent you have these divisions that you know of, if you can stick on common ground and, and try to interact with each other without treading on those divisive things. So think of it as a scar you don't want to pick. <laughs> I think if we can avoid picking that scar with each other, um, then over time, those things that created the division are not going to be so important. And I think it will fade. And, and I think if we're smart, we will let it fade gracefully. Um, I think the one thing we can do wrong is do any sort of victory laps or told you so's or, or anything that continues the divisiveness. I think we all just have to say, listen, we're sick of it. We're, we don't want to go to that divisive place and we're not going to. And I think if we can avoid it, then yeah, I think it will fade. Which is very odd considering where we were at the beginning of this pandemic when everybody at 7 o'clock was banging pots and pans for the healthcare workers and being incredibly united. Then it, and it seemed to be around the time of the Freedom Convoy, whether that had anything yeah. to do with it or not. But it just yeah. seemed that attitudes changed and we went from helping each other to, to being divisive. Yeah, which, which isn't totally surprising because the more stress we feel, the more we become um, fight or flight, which is, which is a very personal sort of emotion. So people wanting to protect themselves, protect their families. And it's kind of like the circle of caring gets shrunk <laughs> at that point in time where you, you know, bring in the wagons around your house, your family, your life. And I think that's what we saw with some of the Freedom Convoy and stuff where they were willing to, you know, be really insulting and damaging to Canadian society in general to make this personal point that they felt at a very emotional level. And I think that's, you know, not so surprising in retrospect, but to see it play out was a little, you know, for every Canadian, I think it really reshaped our notion of, of who we are and, you know, who we aren't, perhaps. Advice for this time of year? Um, well, I mean, the biggest thing I, I'm suggesting to people is beware to keep your social connections strong and healthy. Um, uh, it's a big part of an initiative that, that I'm um, working with called the GenWell Initiative. And the worry is that we've all become very comfortable with these virtual interactions with other human beings. But the psychology says we are going to become progressively unhappy if we're not engaging in more close physical interactions with other human beings. And so I recommend to people schedule that into your day. Make sure you get a chance to go to that coffee shop or that pub, whatever is your thing. Spend some time with friends in face-to-face -face interactions. It's more important to your well-being than you know. Great advice. Steve Jordan's with us, Professor of Psychology, University of Toronto in um, early 2023. And advice getting through it. Steve, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you, Scott. You too. The Rogers-Shaw deal is getting closer to becoming a reality as East meets West, and uh, this uh, giant company has now uh, a footprint in pretty much every major province or every province across the country. Let's bring in Marvin Ryder, professor with the DeGroote School of Business, McMaster University. He is with us now. Marvin, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I'm well, and Happy New Year. 
And Happy New Year to you, too, Marvin. Thank you so much. Um, has this been a more difficult journey than any other merger has been similar to this? Because it seems that, you know, it was dragging on and, and, and no doubt due to uh, the public's perception of, of, of companies and cell phone and such. But has this been a more difficult journey? Yes. Short answer is yes. This has taken twists and turns that I don't think any of us saw. Uh, for instance, you'll remember last summer when Rogers had a, a day of blackout, suddenly people said, well, ooh, mm. is it a good idea to let a couple of these things merge? Uh, the latest twist, and I should tell you, this is not done yet. The latest twist just happened in the last day or so. It gets a little confusing. Let me see if I can help you out. There is an institution called the Competition Bureau. And when these organizations want to merge, they have their cases reviewed by the Competition Bureau. It then makes a case to something called the Competition Tribunal. So it's a bit like the police investigate and then you go to a judge and present your case. The Competition Bureau investigates. They present it to the tribunal. And before Christmas, the tribunal said, all clear. We don't see a problem with this. Let the merger proceed. Well, just yesterday, the Competition Bureau filed an injunction saying we want to stall this. We think you've made some procedural errors and we want to have a judge review all of this. The judge granted a temporary injunction stopping the merger until the case can be heard. Now, I think it will go through. The problem is for Rogers and Shaw, they have a deadline of January 31st. Everything seemed to be coming together to meet that deadline. Now this uh, latest injunction has thrown a, a spanner in the works, as they say. And I, I don't know how fast they'll be able to hear this and how fast a ruling will come. The government is prepared to approve it as long as it sells its freedom mobile operations to Quebecor. And Quebecor agrees to offer its fairly good rates to the rest of Canada. Assuming all that happens, this could wrap up by the end of this month. But I'm not sure the soap opera is over. So, uh, in the end, is this good for customers? Does this does this have any impact, or will this have any impact on customers? Well, the Quebec Corps part of this, I think, is is great. Actually, Quebec Corps uh, offers uh, some some pretty good rates, but only in Quebec. They have not had a footprint outside of Canada. So, on one hand, we don't like to see two big players merging. Uh, Rogers is the number one company, certainly in things like cell phones. Uh, uh, Shaw is number four. So we don't like to see number one get bigger. But if in creating this, they spin off the cell phone stuff to Quebecor and Quebecor comes through with its promise to offer its far better rates to the rest of the country, this could be an advantage to the rest of us. And we may see some pressure. Again, funny thing about 2022, inflation was a big term, but oddly in the cell phone business, we saw better rates in 2024. We didn't have inflation in cell phone. Now, whether this was, again, preparation for the mergers or everyone sharpened their pencil, I don't know. But for the moment, some good things are happening for consumers in that market. Whenever we hear of them adding more bandwidth or, or giving opportunities for smaller companies, whether it's Freedom or whoever, to get a, a footprint in this industry, it seems like within a couple of years they're out of business or bought out by some of the big players anyway. Do you see the same thing happening here? Well, the hope is not. Uh, the, the minister involved here, Minister Champagne, has said, we want you to be together for at least 10 years. That's another thing they're going to approve. You can't just be in this for a year or two and sell out. 
Um, the problem often is, Scott, that if my only competitive advantage, the only thing I'm offering you is cheap prices and I don't offer anything else, well, that's a losing game. You just you can't be there in the long haul simply being the lowest. You've got to offer decent amounts of service, other kinds of bundles, the appropriate levels of, of uh, uh, bandwidth and what have you that people want in their purchases. Uh, so you can't just be the cheapest. Now, Quebec Corps has succeeded in Quebec for many years and does seem to get it. The question is, can they upscale, upscale their operation to the rest of Canada? And that's the unknown quantity here. There are uh, pundits, and I don't claim to be an expert in telecommunications, but there are pundits in this area who worry about the ability of Quebec or to scale up to meet the needs of BC and Alberta and Saskatchewan and Ontario in a way that it's never had to do before. I just think that's a delightful challenge to have. Now, clearly you and I would cheer if an American came north of the border, but I don't think this government in Ottawa is at least uh, uh, the least bit interested in allowing American competition in. This might be the next best thing we can hope for. Uh, that was my next question, Marvin. Will we ever see U.S. players and lots of options instead of two or three or four? Right. So the keyword you used in your question was ever. Ever is a very, very long time. To the extent <laughs> that Mr. Trudeau and the liberals are in power, I think the answer to that question will be no. But we know historically in Canada that nobody stays in power forever. And of course, uh, uh, our friend Pierre Polyevre would like to change that whenever the next election is held. So I think a conservative government might be a little more interested in allowing some limited amount of international players. Now, whether those are American or European, there are European companies that stand to come in. The only thing we know for sure is it won't be a Chinese company that would be leading the competition. But I think in the future, we will see it. I just wouldn't expect it in the next year or two. Is there any reason for not doing it? Like, why aren't they already opening this up? Well, the worry always is that American companies can just flood the market. You know, take a take a different example. There is a brewery in the Cincinnati area that, whose annual production is greater than the entire consumption in Canada. If you just took all restrictions off and let them flood into the market, how could Canadian companies compete? Uh, once upon a time in the jam market, the number one selling jam product was Kraft. Today, if you take a look at Smucker's, Who's that? That's an American company that came north of the border, and they were able to compete more effectively. Now, is that a big issue? Well, there's another school of thought that says we should try to, if at all possible, keep Canadian companies in the marketplace. Sometimes they just don't have the economy of scale of the Americans. So limited competition, uh, open at a crack, open, open certain parts of the market, I think is great. Whether we just should drop all the barriers and let the chips fly where they may, well, there are people's livelihoods at stake here. And what is really a Canadian company? I mean, breweries you use, for example, they're most of the big ones are all foreign owned now. Fair enough. Although, you know, again, any company that's traded on the stock market can be owned by anyone in the world. Stocks are not unique to a certain country. All I'm saying is that I think there are people who are re reluctant to just take all the restrictions off. And therefore, I right. think a, a way to just crack open the door would be the right approach. But the liberal government just does not seem to be willing to do that. They'd rather see regional players grow to be national players rather than letting international companies come into the market. Uh, will these two companies merging, uh, does that necessarily mean job loss? Is there, uh, is there duplication here? Will there be uh, job losses? Is this a changing media landscape? 
Right. So the answer to your question is yes, I'm sure there'll be some job loss. This is what we often call synergy. Uh, if company one has a bookkeeper and company two has a bookkeeper, do you really need two bookkeepers or can you just scale up your existing operations? So I think to the extent you're going to see job losses, they will be administrative, managerial, middle management, if you will. Uh, that's a group of people that most people don't have any sympathy for as long as you don't touch frontline workers. And I think the frontline workers will remain as you go through. But for sure, there will be some middle management that won't be needed and they will be downsized. And, and that, again, is the name of efficiency. Hopefully, with more efficiency, there are some savings that could be passed along to consumers as opposed to simply popping up the broad, bottom line and improving profits. Marvin Ryder with us, professor at the Root School of Business, McMaster University, talking about the Rogers-Shaw deal getting closer. Marvin, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. I will. Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right, Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am and well. happy New Year. And happy New Year to you as well. Yes, I... I, I um... I trust you had a good New Year and stayed dry and, I mean, out of the rain, I mean. I, I, I yes, doubt you stayed dry. Yes. <laughs> you never know. It may I may have started my resolutions early. How's that going? Uh, no, you know, it's, yeah. you know, resolutions are made to be broken. And, you know, I had a psychologist on today that said you shouldn't call them resolutions. You should, you should uh, call them goals. Which is, you know, because I guess that'll goals make are a big more difference. easily broken. Yeah, that'll make <laughs> exactly. a big difference. Oh, I failed at right. my goal. That, that's a new one for me. Yeah, yeah. there you go. It makes you feel better. It's all in how you position things, Scott. I suppose. So yesterday, I'm watching the Team Canada game. Uh, the family's gathered around, you know, blah, 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 lots of stuff going along on, you know, the places of buzz. And all of my all, my son's who's on his phone, no matter if he's watching TV or not, yes. uh, immediately says, Dad, you got to switch to the Bills game. Something's going on. Something's going on. And we flip over. And, of course, uh, you know, there it is. The game has stopped. And uh, DeMar Hamlin is uh, on the field yep. uh, suffering cardiac arrest what are your thoughts of seeing this and just how the whole thing went down well first of all let me just say something about that junior game and then we'll get to that and that is that kid connor bedard who it looks out isn't that something eh? uh, but i had someone today say you know what this kid could be as good as gretzky and i had to point out to them that if connor bedard is drafted into the nhl next year which he will be he will need to score a hundred points a season every season until he is 47 years old to get as many points as wayne gretzky you might want well, to keep your powder dry a little bit here. Um, yeah, yeah. Although that was an impressive goal in OT. It was an amazing was goal. Nice. No, it was an amazing. Yeah. The kid's an amazing player. Just yeah. anytime someone says, "Oh, this kid's the next Gretzky," it's like, "Yeah, okay. Yeah. Let's let's just yeah. you know keep keep things calm for a moment here." We, he hasn't even played a game in the NHL. Uh, the other thing, yeah, I was watching the game last night, and there is, there. I mean, look, it, it's been nonstop TV coverage. All day yeah. long, all night long, there is literally nothing else that can be said that has not already been said. All that anyone wants to know is, how is he doing? And that is the one piece of information that we don't have. And, you know, there are some key words that I keep listening for and have not heard those yet, which causes me concern. One of them, I, I keep waiting for them to say he's breathing on his own. And that's mm. not been said in any of that's that's sort of to me the one when they make that announcement, you kind of then begin to have hope that maybe a corner has been turned and things are going to be okay. Uh, until then, boy, it's um, I, I assume that the players 
know a little more. I assume that they're telling yeah. them a little bit more than us, and that's fine. Um, but yeah, it is. Uh, and, and you know what? The, the I don't know if it's the best or the worst part about this, and not that there's a good or a bad. The fact that the injury happened on a play that was so completely benign. There was nothing malicious. It wasn't a dirty hit. There was nothing wrong with it. In fact, it's the kind of tackle that you would see a million times a year in the NFL and nothing happens. It was a it was a nothing play. Yeah. And it just on this moment and this time at this split second whatever happened happened and here we are. And I I don't know if that makes it easier to watch football again because you say look that could have happened with him crossing the street or if you say that makes it harder to watch because now I know that somebody could have this happen to them on something that wasn't even a big hit I I don't know and again it has happened in other sports we had an expert on talking about it earlier today where it's hockey hockey. and baseball also yeah baseball uh, for sure impact to the chest and 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 he was saying that you know it's a freak situation that really the only way to find out if you can suffer from something like this is to see if there is some sort of underlying condition because he was saying you just have to hit at the right angle and at the right velocity and 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 it can happen but you know it doesn't so many other times so why does it happen the once well twice or however many times it's happened think about something else think about it, it with all the sports that you've watched you i know you watch a lot of racing use that as an example or any other sport how many times Mm. over just the last five years has something happened you go oh that could have been really bad and and you realize i mean how many times has a a ball now they've put netting up around in baseball now but how many times has a ball just rocketed into the stands i'll tell you a story so years ago we went to a game my parents and i and my sister went to a game a blue jay game at the it was then the sky dome and we got these great tickets about five rows up at first base and my mom of course was not a baseball fan she was there because the family was there wasn't really paying attention and a foul ball came in and was going straight for her head and it was the guy across the aisle who just threw his hand up and the ball hit him in the palm of the hand and stuck it was and well five minutes later he looked like the nazi guy from raiders of the lost ark who picked up that chalice that was burned his hand had seams burned into it but if he had not caught that my mom probably takes that in the head yeah. And, and I've seen knows? that happen as well. Yeah. And so there's like in any sport with racing, how many times when you watch racing, do you realize, oh, man, that crash could have been really bad? Um, yeah, absolutely. And yet somehow it happens very seldom. I don't know how, thankfully, but it's it's but when it does happen, my goodness, it is uh, it is horrible to watch. Scott Radley with his uh, host of the Scott Radley Show coming up after the 6 o'clock news, and you can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. Scott, have a great show. Thanks so much. Be well. You too, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. Always appreciated. Thanks to Diana and Dave and the two Wills for producing. And thanks to you for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. It's Will Weber behind the board here for a change. It was a rough spiraling hell of a year but let's make the future bright look forward to great things that we can make happen and we'll take a cup of kindness yet for auld lang syne